you have your copy of God's Word, let's turn together to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1, our text this evening, the first 14 verses of this letter, uh, and really this section that we're going to read together is a section that's familiar from other parts of Paul's corpus in the New Testament. The typical way the Apostle Paul would start a letter uh, is by identifying himself with a greeting and then launching into a a section of thanksgiving and prayer. Uh, And that's exactly what's happening here. But even as we come to to see how Christ is preeminent in each part of this letter, but not just in this letter, how Christ is preeminent over our lives, so too in our praying. Paul here is wanting us to learn to pray, but to pray especially in the light of the gospel, in the light of who Jesus Christ is for us, and because of what Jesus has done for us and is at work in us to do. In the light of that, we're to pray. Uh, I suspect that what we'll hear tonight is a different way of praying than what shapes many of our prayers. But in order for our prayer life and indeed our hearts to be reshaped by the gospel as contained in this portion of the Word of God, we, we need the help of the Holy Spirit. So let's ask Him to help. Would you pray with me, please? Almighty God, we come to you tonight and we, we beg you of your Spirit. Holy Spirit, we pray, come. Rend the heavens and come down. Dwell in the midst of your people. But above all, take your word tonight and make it living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword so that our hearts may be encouraged, yes, but also reshaped and reformed so that we might pray anew and afresh. Grant us this grace, Lord, we ask. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So Colossians chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, And Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. May may you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So, confession is good for the soul. I have a confession tonight. My praying, uh, morning by morning, over the last many, many months, probably back to even COVID, the beginning of COVID, 
really hasn't been something that I would want other people to see. Each morning I make my way up at about 7.15, 7.30 to the chair in our bedroom where all of the different devotional helps I have are there and I go to pray. And most of my praying starts this way, Lord, I'm tired. Lord, I don't like what I'm doing. Lord, I don't like this thing or that thing. Lord, help me. That's been my praying. And then I pick up my Bible and I start reading. I suspect probably if we were to be honest tonight and actually share how our praying has gone over the last weeks or months, perhaps your prayers have been like my prayers. They've, they've been perhaps complaining on the verge of lamenting, uh, or, or perhaps you're, you've been better than that. You, you might have lists of things you're praying for, but I suspect that the things that you're praying for and about, important things, good things, are similar to but probably different than what the Apostle Paul says he's praying as he prays for these Colossians. What Paul holds out for us in these verses that we've read together is a vision of how to pray, but to pray in the light of the gospel, uh, to pray rooted in the gospel and reflecting the gospel, anchored in the gospel and shaped by the gospel. It's a vision of a, of a way of praying that perhaps may prove more faithful to Jesus than at least the way I've been praying recently. Uh, what makes all of this so amazing, this instruction that Paul gives as he, as he tells these Christians in Colossae how to pray, is that, is that Paul is teaching and especially praying for people he's never met. We have no clear evidence that Paul ever made his way to Colossae. He's writing to this baby church here in a town that used to be a major city, a kind of hub city, as it were. Colossae sat at the intersection of major east-west and north-south roads. It was located in the region of Fergia in Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. It's Population was diverse culturally and religiously. People in Colossae were educated and well-off. And in ethos and worldview, Colossae looked a whole lot like most any major American city. Colossae looked a whole lot like Memphis, for that matter. And yet within this city, a church has sprung up, not through Paul's ministry, but through the ministry of a man named Epaphras. He was likely a convert of Paul's who, who had heard him preach in a neighboring town, whether Laodicea or Ephesus, we're not sure, but he's, he's heard Paul preach and he was converted. The gospel took hold. Epaphras was changed and, and felt commissioned to tell others about Jesus. He, he went back home and relayed the news, the good news of Jesus Christ to these Colossians and their lives were changed. A church was planted. He's pastoring there, and he relays the news about what's happened in Colossae to Paul, to the evangelist whose gospel preaching had converted Epaphras. He wanted Paul to know, this has been the effect of your ministry in my life. And Paul is hugely encouraged. In fact, he's so encouraged of what has happened in this town where he's never been, among people that he's never known, 
that he's moved to pray. And his prayer that he, that he prays here for the people, as he tells them what he's been praying, it's, it's in the light of the gospel. It's shaped by gospel word and it's shaped for gospel life. It's specific to the real needs of, of God's new people in a place called Colossae. For what does Paul pray? As he, as he thinks about these people that he's never met, as he's heard about them from Epaphras, for what does he pray? How does he pray? What, what shapes his prayers? What, what priorities are, are right at the heart of Paul's praying? And by extension then, how should we pray? How might we pray in the light of the gospel in a way that's, that's deeper and more profound than at least the way I've been praying? Lord, I'm tired. I don't like this. Help me. Well, well, Paul prays under two big headings in this passage. On the one side, he's, he's thankful for gospel word. Uh, that'll take the, uh, really the first eight verses. And then he moves to ask for specific things for gospel life. So he's thankful for gospel word, how the gospel has been at work in the lives of the Colossians. And then he asks for specific things for their gospel life. So notice first how Paul is thankful for, for gospel word. He, he says, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus, when we pray for you. Now, if you've read Paul's letters, you're familiar with that opening. He says it to the Ephesians. He says it to the Thessalonians. He even hints that away towards uh, the Corinthians. We're, we're used to Paul identifying himself and then launching into a thanksgiving section. We sh just because we're familiar doesn't mean we should rush by it. I think it's important for our praying to be shaped by the way Paul prays. And, and from this, we learn that, that gospel praying is shaped by a fundamental gratitude for God's gospel word at work in the lives of others, in, in, the, in the world in general, and in our own congregation. Notice how Paul is thankful for the way the gospel is at work in their lives. Look at what Paul says. Your, your Bible's open, right? Look at verse 4. He says, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, verse 4, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Do you see it? That great triad of virtues, faith, hope, and love. Paul's thankful for, for how the gospel has been at work in their lives because he sees that their faith has been anchored in Jesus Christ. He says, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus. When he thinks about these people, he thinks about them as those who have put their trust, their faith in Jesus. And their faith in Jesus has caused them to love. And to love whom? To love the saints, but not just some of the saints. What does he say? Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all the saints. All the saints. Not just the ones that you have things in common with, but the things you don't have common with. People, the people that you don't have anything in common with. Not just the people who are nice to you, but the people who rub you the wrong way. Not just the people you get along with, but also those who've actually harmed you in some way. 
doesn't excuse us from the duties of love. Why? Because, because of our faith in Jesus Christ, because he has loved us with such a great love. Our hearts are changed in such a way that because we put our trust in him, he actually pours out his spirit in our hearts so that we are enabled to love not some of the saints, but all of the saints. And yet there's another virtue. Not only is Paul thankful for their faith in Jesus, not only is he thankful for uh, their love for all the saints, but he's also thankful for their hope of heaven, right? Verse 5, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Their faith and love connect with hope. They've turned from idolatry, worshiping the false gods of, of the Roman Empire, and they've turned in faith to Jesus Christ. And because they've turned in faith to Jesus Christ as one who's been raised from the dead, their hopes have been anchored in him. They have hope both now for the present, but also hope for the future. Because Christ has been raised, so too they will be raised. And so when Paul reflects upon these Colossians, these new Christians, and he, and he moves, his, his heart is moved to gratitude. He expresses gratitude, especially for the way the gospel has been at work in their lives, as evidenced by their faith, love, and hope. But he also expresses gratitude for the way that the gospel has been at work in their church. Look at verse 6. He says, Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel which has come to you as indeed in the whole world is bearing fruit increasing, as it does among you. What's Paul saying? Well, he's saying that the gospel is producing fruit. It's producing a new creation in them. In the same way that in the beginning, when Adam and Eve were first made and they were set into the garden, what did God say to Adam and Eve? Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. Well, what's happening now? What is the gospel doing now? Well, the gospel right now is bearing fruit and increasing. Be fruitful, multiply, bearing fruit, increasing. I don't think that's an accident. Paul is paralleling the language of the first creation by saying there's a new creation that's emerging, and it's emerging there in your church. This spirit-wrought fruitfulness of righteousness, the, the fruit of the Spirit, yes, that comes through Christ Jesus. Uh, and it comes in their lives, especially through, through the ministry of Epaphras. Paul speaks of him in verse 7. He says, uh, since the day you heard the gospel and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it, verse 7, from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. It's gospel that's been at work in their lives, producing faith, hope, and love. This gospel that's at work in their church, so that this, this church is becoming a place of new creation. It's being pastored and shepherded through this faithful minister named Epaphras. He's the one that's preached the grace of God in truth to them. And so Paul mentions Epaphras at this point, calls him a faithful minister. And he expresses his gratitude for Epaphras' ministry in their midst. Not just Epaphras and not just the church, but them together. As Paul gives gratitude to God, as he prays with thankfulness, he prays with thankfulness because he sees the gospel at work. The gospel at work in their individual lives, the gospel at work in their church, but not just there. The gospel's at work in the world more broadly. 
That's what he says in verse 6. We passed by it briefly. Um, Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you. As indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing. The gospel is bearing fruit and increasing in the whole world. We sometimes forget that. Our vision gets so limited and myopic. We limit it to the shores of the United States, or, or we limit it even more to Memphis, or we limit it even more to our own congregation. Paul here reminds us, no, the gospel is bearing fruit, not just in your own life or in your own church, but in the whole world. It's one of the reasons why, especially when I was a young minister, I loved to go to General Assembly. We were serving in a little PCA church in Louisville, Kentucky. We were the only PCA church in town. Our presbytery encompassed Kentucky, Ohio, and Indiana. We had no PCA churches near us. And so every, you know, three times a year we'd go to presbytery, but really we were all spread out. We really had no sense of what God was doing in our small little presbytery. But when we went to General Assembly and you'd have 1,500 commissioners drawn from all over uh, the country— Uh, in this common work in the gospel, it made you feel as though, wow, I'm not by myself. I'm, I'm not alone. I'm not crazy. I'm actually part of something much, much bigger. But friends, we are bigger than, we're part of something bigger than, than just one denomination. Uh, One of the things I try to impress on our students when they go through History of Christianity 1 and 2 is they are part of a global tradition. And, and today there are more Christians in Africa than there are in the United States. Uh, there's, there's twice as many Christians in Africa than there are people in the United States, according to Philip Jenkins in his book, The Next Christendom. At one point in 2003, Jenkins estimated that 17,000 people were coming to Christ every day in Africa. But we, we get ourselves so focused on the United States and our own place. And, oh, Christianity, we're secularizing. Christianity is going, uh, it's going away. No. no. Christianity globally is bearing fruit the whole world. The gospel is bearing fruit in the whole world. Even now, right now, at this moment. It's part of the reason, again, to tie into this morning, why mission is so important for us. To be to be able to see what, what the reality is in the global church and to realize there's a, there's a whole lot more folk out here than just our little Presbyterian band. Uh, there are Pentecostals in every place around this world who love Jesus. And while we may not line up doctrinally at every point, they love Jesus with all their heart. All their heart. Now, the gospel is bearing fruit in the whole world as it, was, as it is today, so it was in the first century. And Paul gives thanks. I wonder, how would my praying change? How would your praying change if instead of starting, Lord, I'm tired. I don't like this. I want it to change. Please help me. Instead of starting there to say, Lord, I give you thanks that I see evidence in my own heart and life of faith, hope, and love. I see the ways that you're at work in our church. Let me number some of the ways. Lord, my ears can't wait to hear and to catch knowledge of what you are doing in your world, in the global church, in Africa, in Asia, in India, in in Mexico, in in Ecuador, wherever it may be. I can't wait to hear 
And so to praise you and to give thanks to you because your gospel is bearing fruit in the whole world. How would our praying change? Paul's teaching us how to pray shaped by the gospel. And part of praying shaped by the gospel is we give thanks. We give thanks for, for this gospel word and work as, as God by his spirit takes the word and takes men and women like you and me and forms them and shapes them into the image of Christ. But, but Paul moves from expressing gratitude or thankfulness for gospel word, and he moves to very specific supplications, very specific requests as he asks for things for their gospel life. Um, what do you tend to pray about? I'll tell you what I tend to pray about, what's on my prayer list. I pray for a lot of physical needs. Um, I pray for hip replacements and procedures. I pray for cancer treatments. Uh, I pray for those who have fallen. All those are good things. I'm not saying don't pray for them. But we tend to pray, don't we? We tend to pray for, for physical health or security or, or safety. But when Paul goes to pray, what does he pray for? What does he ask for? Well, he tends to ask for not physical security, but spiritual maturity, right? In fact, in verses 9 to 14, there are four things that, that characterize this spiritual maturity for which Paul prays. Four different things that he prays for. He, he prays for spiritual knowing. He prays for worthy walking. He prays for strengthened enduring. And he prays for grace-shaped thanksgiving so that the prayer begins and ends with gratitude. Notice first how Paul prays for the Colossians, for their spiritual maturity, that they might have spiritual knowing. You see it in verse 9? He says, and so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Paul, Paul prays that that these Colossians, whom he's never met, might be filled with the knowledge of God's will. Now, when Paul prays for that, he's not praying that the Colossians might know God's will in terms of what they should do tomorrow, or what career they should pursue, or whom they should marry, or where they should go to college. No, the, the, the spiritual knowing for which Paul prays, the spiritual wisdom and understanding that he desires for the Colossians, centers on Jesus and his gospel. Remember what Paul's just finished saying. He's thankful for the way the gospel word, the word of truth, the gospel, has shaped their lives, has shaped their church, has shaped their world. And now he's praying that God, by his Spirit, would fill these believers with a continued and deeper knowing of Jesus. That they might know Jesus' will, his wisdom, and his understanding. I think that's why he's going to go in the very next section to talk about how Christ is preeminent over everything. Because part of spiritual knowing is knowing that Jesus rules, that he is the king, that he's preeminent in his creation, and he's preeminent in his redemption. He's preeminent in the past, in the present, and he'll be preeminent in the future. Christ is preeminent over all things. That's true spiritual knowing. That's what Paul wants these believers to know beyond a shadow of a doubt, that King Jesus rules over all, and he's preeminent. He's first. And so when he prays, He's praying for their spiritual maturity. And the first thing he prays for is, is their spiritual knowing. 
But he also prays, secondly, for their worthy walking. Look at verse 10. He says, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. You see here how he, he prays that, that they might have a worthy walk, uh, walking in a manner worthy of the Lord. Well, what does that look like? What is, it, what is a walk or a life worthy of the Lord? What does it look like? Well, it's a life, Paul says, that's fully pleasing to him. Paul's going to put it this way in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 1. We urge and ask you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to live and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. You see, Paul's not saying walk worthy so that you might be pleasing to the Lord. Rather, he's saying because you are already pleasing to the Lord, because you already have God's smile beaming down on you so that his face is shining upon you, his countenance has been lifted up upon you, because you already know God's smile, live in such a way. Because we live this way, we live fully pleasing to the Lord. But it's also a life that bears fruit in every good work. What Paul says here, he's, he's asking that, that we might walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work. Now, he's already said that the gospel is bearing fruit and increasing and growing in their lives. But Paul's praying that they would continue to do so. They would continue to bear fruit, that they wouldn't get distracted. It's so easy to get distracted, isn't it? We take our eyes off of, of the very virtues that the Spirit's working in us, and we settle for lesser things. Now, Paul says, no, don't do that. The gospel's bearing fruit in your lives. Stay focused on that. Walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. Continue to bear fruit by the power of the Spirit. But it's not only a life that's fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit. It, it's also a life that, that increases in the knowledge of God. That's what a worthy life looks like. It increases in knowing. Paul doesn't separate knowing and living. He doesn't say, well, it's enough that you know. It doesn't matter how you live. Or conversely, he doesn't say, it's just how you live. It doesn't matter what you know. You can be doctrinally a mess and live, how, live a holy life. No, Paul puts knowing and living together. He puts doctrine and life together. He wants us to live worthily, to have a worthy walk, bearing fruit in every sphere, increasing in, in the knowledge of God, applying ourselves, yes, mentally, but also spiritually in every area of life so that every area of life bears fruit for King Jesus. That's why he prays that we might have a, a worthy walk. But he also prays for a strengthened enduring. He says in verse 11, May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. There's, there's power language here. May you be strengthened, that has to do with power, with all power, of course that's power, according to his glorious might or power. So Paul's basically saying, may you have power with all power according to his glorious power. Okay. To do what? To endure. To endure. You wouldn't think that you would need that much strength to endure, would you? And yet those of you who have known difficulty and affliction, 
who have known challenges in, in the workplace or challenges with your health or challenges with your marriage, you know that you need Holy Spirit power to endure. That's what Paul prays for. He prays that you might have a strengthened enduring so that with patience and joy you might continue to pursue Christ. That to be, to be able to have such power, power, power to endure to the end when situations threaten to undo us and people exasperate us and we struggle with our sinful desires and, and we deal with our persistent idolatries. What do we most desperately need in those times? We need God's power. That's why Paul prays that we might have a strengthened enduring. But there's one last thing he prays for. He prays for a grace-shaped thanksgiving. Just as he began by giving thanks for them, he prays that they might give thanks too. Verse 12, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. See, ultimately spiritual maturity it looks like these other things, but you see it most clearly in, in a soul that's grateful. Having been shaped by the grace of, of the gospel, they just simply can't help but give thanks. And especially to give thanks that they've been qualified to share in the inheritance. Well, how were they qualified? Well, verses 13 and 14 describe it. They've been transferred, transferred from the kingdom of darkness, taken by the very power of the Spirit into the kingdom of light so that they might know redemption and the forgiveness of sins. That's how they've been qualified. That's how we've been qualified. We can't save ourselves. We can't qualify ourselves to stand before God. We can't trophy our own works or climb the ladder to heaven. No. None of us could rescue ourselves from the power of the enemy, from the power of darkness and the power of our own sin. It's only because God reached down to rescue us, to transfer us, to qualify us, Shouldn't that motivate our thanksgiving? Shouldn't that motivate our praise? I wonder how our praying would change if we asked God for these four things, to keep praying for all the bodily needs that we have in our congregation, but also to pray for these things, that we might have a, a, a knowing, that we might have a worthy walking, uh, that we might have a, a grace-shaped thanksgiving, that we might have a, a strengthened enduring. How, how would our view of one another change if we prayed these things for each other? If I were to begin to pray, Lord, please grant Robert a spiritual knowing so that, so that he would be, without a shadow of a doubt, have a, a clear sense of your will centered on Christ Jesus, Lord, please encourage him, strengthen him so that he might endure in the calling you've given him. And may he, may he be grateful for what you've done in his life, in his family's life. Lord, please be with my brother. Strengthen him in the inner man. How would our relationship change if I prayed for my brother just that way? Let me go a little further. How would your relationship change with the person you are frustrated with now? You're angry with. Your relationship's been broken. How would your relationship with them change if you began to pray those four things for them? Asking for gospel life to take root in their heart, to take root in their life. How would that change? How would you change? How would your relationship change? How would our church change? I, I suspect that part of the way 
gospel word actually shapes our life as a church so that we begin to bear fruit actually is found in this prayer. Praying shaped by the gospel. I don't know about you, but Lord willing, tomorrow morning when I'm in my chair up in our bedroom at about 7.15, Lord willing, I won't pray, Lord, I'm tired. But instead, I'll pray, and I would ask you to join me. Lord, thank you. Thank you. And grant us grace, Lord, to be shaped by the gospel. Would you pray with me, please? Almighty God, we do bless you that you give us such good instruction in what a praying life looks like. There's so much in that we wish we knew, whether it's about baptism or Lord's Supper or the proper mode of preaching or whatever it may be. You don't tell us a lot about any of those things, but you tell us a lot about how to pray. Thank you, Lord, that you give us such clear instruction. But Lord, we need not only instruction, we need the very power of the Holy Spirit so that we might not only be taught how to pray, but actually to pray. And so, Holy Spirit, we pray, take this word and apply it to our hearts and lives, we ask. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.